Hello and a very warm welcome to this third installment of the new Science and Life webinar series on rare diseases. My name is Sean Sanders and I'm the director and senior editor for Custom Publishing at Science as well as the moderator for today's discussion. In this nine-part series that will run through the remainder of 2021, we are unpacking many different aspects of this important topic of rare diseases. If you missed our first two webinars in the series, you can find archive recordings at webinar.sciencemag.org. These webinars, as well as recordings of future events, will be posted right there. Our first webinar in this series was a broad overview of this topic, while the second focused on the challenges of diagnosing rare diseases. Today we have taken a slightly different tack, investigating the detection of rare diseases. Uh, finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now that we have those details out the way, I'm honored and delighted to introduce our exceptional panel of experts to you now. Uh, actually, I'm going to give them the opportunity to introduce themselves. So welcome to you all and thank you so much for making the time to join us today. And uh, Marshall, I'm going to have you start us off by introducing yourself. All right, my name's Marshall Summer. I run the Rare Disease Institute at Children's National Hospital here in Washington, DC. We're just a few blocks from each other, but during this year, that's how we do things these days. <laughs> Great, thank you so much, Marshall. Uh, next, uh, I'm gonna turn to Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia, please go ahead. Good morning, I'm Cynthia Tift, and I am the Deputy Clinical Director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at the National Institutes of Health. Great, thank you so much, Cynthia. Uh, up next, let's have uh, Ji Meng. Thanks for joining us, Ji Meng. Hi, everyone. This is Ji Meng Sun. I'm a professor at Computer Science Department and also Carlos Illinois College of Medicine at University of Illinois Urbana Champaign. Uh, my research focuses mostly on AI for healthcare. I'm a computer scientist working very closely with many clinicians and leveraging electronic health record to build uh, predictive models. Great to be here. Great, thank you so much, Jimang. And finally, joining us all the way from Finland is Helena. Welcome, Helena. Hello, everybody. I'm Helena Karjan, and I live in Helsinki, Finland, and I'm a clinical geneticist. I've been working with rare diseases all my professional life. Great, thank you, Helena. Uh, so since our previous discussion, uh, our previous webinar uh, was about the diagnosis of rare diseases, uh, today we we're going to talk about the detection of rare diseases. And Marshall, I'm gonna put it on you first to see if you can explain, explain to our audience the difference between detection and diagnosis. Well, I'm, I'm gonna substitute the word detection also with the word suspicion of a rare disease diagnosis. So from where we're sitting in the clinic, and we've obviously got a great group here, um, there's kind of three ways that we sort of detect rare disease. One, one is what I would call population-based screening. Um, obviously, a good example is the newborn screening programs that are available. Um, the other one is in the hands of a clinician seeing a patient, sort of the detection is they have a suspicion that this patient is no longer falling in the normal range of disease, but is actually falling into that rare disease category. And I think one of the exciting things about having Jiming on here is um, there's another way we can detect, which is scanning data pools and trying to sift through um, patient data to try to identify those patients with a rare disease. So when I'm thinking of detection, those are kind of the ways I would uh, line that out. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Cynthia, any thoughts from you? 
I, I sort of think of detection as confirmation of a suspicion of a diagnosis. Uh, as Marshall said, I think, you know, once a child or an adult leaves that spectrum of what one would consider more common diseases and begins to, to look a little different, you may have a variety of things that you think perhaps could be going on in that individual and detection is really the diagnostic testing. And that could be metabolic, that could be genetic sequencing, that could be um, a number of things that would help you actually pinpoint the particular diagnosis out of maybe three or four rare potential conditions. Excellent. So, um Jimeng, Marshall mentioned uh, the use of databases. Can you sort of briefly say, you know, how, how do you look at detection and, and how do you use the, these databases as a way to find uh, potential rare diseases? Right. So, so my background is building uh, predictive models with a, a large amount of uh, patient data, usually electronic health records or other type of patient data, even medical claims data and so on. So a rare disease detection is very tricky in that regard, mainly because it's just uh, the number of uh, samples is very limited. So uh, most of those uh, AI algorithm, machine learning algorithm uh, require a large amount of uh, high quality training data in order to build algorithms. But uh, I mean, for rare disease, we have worked on a, a few, but it's just very few uh, kind of high quality patient data set that we can use to build those uh, predictive models. So it's a, I mean, I think it's not much different from detecting other diseases other than it's just much harder because of sample size and also data quality issues and 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 all kinds of challenges with what the input features should be included there. So it's just a harder version of uh, disease detection uh, in general from uh, patient database. Mm -hmm. One of the topics that came up um, a number of times in our previous two webinars was the use of databases and or the, the importance of databases. So, uh, Ximeng, you mentioned that one of the challenges is that you have very few um, cases in these databases. So, uh, is, is this improving? Are um, doctors, hospitals getting better at putting information into databases that you can use? Well, I think it, uh, definitely these days uh, data are digitized, right? So one thing, uh, at least uh, in most of the developed countries, uh, electronic health records are widely used. So they are at least in a digitized form that can potentially be used for building models. And the challenge with rare diseases, they are rare and they're distributed, right? So it's hard to take one hospital's data and build a predictive model for any of those rare disease, just the, the case count is very small. And also predict rare disease probably require non-traditional uh, input features like genetic tests and other type of data that are just not common. So unlike we have done a lot of common disease, you just use comorbidity and age, a lot of other factors, you can build a very accurate model. But for rare disease, you need some specialized uh, features that require very special tests. And also the case count is small. So that's make this very, very hard. Mm -hmm. Let me throw something on top of that. I'm, I think one of the things we went across in the modern electronic medical record is 
the physical exam or the phenotype description is not always as in-depth or as well. I mean, we don't have great coding on those. I wonder uh, if the rest would like to comment on how can we use imagery data? So in other words, hmm. common uh, photography, radiography, things like that, that to provide depth to that. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll throw that open to Helena, so and, and you can maybe give us your perspective also from uh, the European side. Um, well, the problem with rare diseases is that they are so rare. So that's the sort of main <laughs> main problem. And I can understand that that collecting big data for uh, something that is very rare is always difficult. So there remains also the alert clinician and his or her role. It doesn't disappear even, even though we are hoping for the big data. Where big data is very useful is the gene diagnostics, of course, because for gene diagnostics, we need a lot of normal data. Otherwise, we, we, we don't recognize what is normal and what is abnormal. But yes, in Europe, we try to join forces and so that the small countries like my country would add their cases to the to the other countries, but always there will be rare patients who are so rare that there maybe is not another case in the world. You know, but the what the advantage to being in a small European country like Finland is that you have data on each patient in a very consistent way going back yeah. from childhood. You know, our issue in the United States is that many people are in multiple health systems and move from one health system mm -hmm. to another over their lifespan. So there's not that continuity of data that one would have if they were living in a place like Finland where there's just really nice retrospective data. I mean, yes, Finland's been a world have, yeah. We also have registers, a lot of yes. registers in all Nordic countries. And this is that we sort of, we sort of uh, think that collecting useful data for healthcare, but also for, for the system, but also for the patients is more important than the privacy issues, which we also try to, we try to keep the private data safe, but, and, and we keep it safe. But, but anyway, there's not such a conflict between private issues and, and using registered data. There's a flip side to this, Sean, I don't think a lot of folks think about. So we show, uh, you know, kind of the graphic we use for rare diseases, you'll see this huge population of figures, and then there's one that's a different shade or a different look, and the, the goal is to pick that one out. Um, one thing we have to keep in mind too, if we start picking out ones who don't have rare disease, there's a consequence for that as well too. Mm -hmm. So the false positive rate in rare disease is something we pay a lot of attention to, to make sure we're not overly stressing families who may not have anything else to worry about, but we've either picked them up through a screening tool or things like that. And, and there's actually some data showing in uh, newborn screening that the false positives can have long-term impacts as well too. So while we want to be incredibly sensitive to pick up those patients, we got to be careful too that we don't have a lot of um, side effects on other folks who don't really have anything to worry about otherwise. Mm -hmm. Great. So about 70% um, of rare diseases are caused by genetic factors and about 30% uh, are, are other factors. And, and we're going to get to the others in a minute. But uh, Cynthia, I'd like to come to you to explain to us what does it mean to have a genetic defect or a mutation uh, that causes a rare disease? 
You know, in, in the genetics world, we don't like to call them defects, mm -hmm. um, genetic changes perhaps, because all of us have a certain number, six to eight rare recessive lethal genes that we all carry. Mm -hmm. And if, if you don't happen to have children by someone who is carrying a mutation in the same gene, you may go generations without ever seeing that. So in terms of trying to not um, um, point out defects, I guess you would say, or uh, you wanna make sure that you, the language you use is um, non, I guess, non-stigmatizing, I guess would be the best way to say that. So um, we know that there are many factors you know, that can lead to these genetic diseases. Some of them you're inher you inherit the gene from your families and some of them are what we call new spontaneous mutations that occur just in that person. Mm -hmm. So the parents, no one else in the family has that and it occurs just in that particular person. Mm -hmm. So they are hereditary in some cases and they are spontaneous in others, but they're all genetically based. Mm -hmm. Do you have an idea of the, the breakdown, the percentage that are hereditary and the percentage that are de novo and new mutations? Oh boy. <laughs> well, anyway, they are more de novo than we expected mm. uh, in the old yeah. times. I think we all always thought that it could be recessive and it could be inherited from the both parents. But today we know that really, really many cases are mistakes in one egg cell or one sperm cell. And of course, from that person on, they <laughs> might be hereditary in the coming generation if the person has children at one time but 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 i remember so many families where i said that you have to be be prepared to the fact that it may be hereditary and it may come in in another child and today knowing the variant we know that very many of the cases will not um recur in the family and i would Lena, say would you say 50 50 is a reasonable number might be, yeah. Yeah, that's a guess. Um, <laughs> but just from what we've seen clinically, I don't know. I think many of these ultra rare diseases, as you say, Helena, that have gone undiagnosed for such a long time, do indeed tend to turn out to be these new dominant mutations, which, you know, in a sense, as you say, is reassuring for the family because the chance it would happen again is exceedingly small as opposed to a recessive disease where they would be looking at a one in four recurrence risk. So, you know, that's really useful information for the families. You know, as part of my role here at the NIH, I run the pediatric portion of the undiagnosed diseases program. And so not only are we dealing with rare and ultra rare diseases, we're dealing with diseases that are brand new, that have never been seen before, that maybe there's only one or two other cases. And I would say that often it's the case that these are new dominant mutations. They're not rare recessives that we once assumed them to be. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, if I, it, you know, go ahead, go ahead, Marshall. No, I was going to say there's there's also a fairly I hate to say the term high degree of uncertainty. That's not exactly the right way, but when when you find a genetic change in a patient, um, I, I you know unless it's something really straightforward, you know, Down syndrome would be really straightforward. Um, the most common answer a lot of times these days after doing sequencing is maybe, and that may be a maybe with a high degree of certainty. But uh, we're discovering so many things at such a rapid rate. I think when all of us started, you could diagnose a couple of dozen things accurately with you know, molecular testing, which used to be chromosomes. Now, 
uh, it's every week there are several new links between a genetic change and a clinical uh, phenotype or a clinical disease. Mm-hmm. And that's going to, I think part of the pace of that means that some of that's going to change. We're going to go back and say, oh, we thought this one did it. Now we're not so sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe as a word we use a lot. So Yes, and that's actually, actually the part of genetic diagnostics where we seriously need the big data to, to, to accumulate and come because it's so sad that we, we say that yes, there's a gene and there's a variant in the gene, but we don't know if it means anything. Maybe, maybe not. And in the Undiagnosed Disease Program, we come across this all the time. And, you know, in order to really sort it out, even if you find a change in a gene that's quite compelling in terms of its function, but it's not been described before, um, Helena, as you well know, in clinical genetics, you are left sort of with two things. You can either find another family or two families that have the same change or a similar change in that gene and similar symptoms. And based on that, you can invoke that as a diagnosis or in the absence of second or third cases, you're left then with trying to model genetic changes of that gene in a model organism like a fruit fly or um, a mouse or a zebrafish and looking at the phenotype in that animal model. And if that is similar, then you can invoke that gene change as being causative in the patient. But that's a long process you know, having to go to the modeling stage is a three or four year process that you might be coming back to a patient in four or five years saying, oh yeah, now we know what you have, but it's a long process. Yeah. So I was doing some back of the envelope math the other day and the pace of linking new genetic changes to disease, I think is something like five to 10 a week, Um, which also means trying to figure out what those diseases are. Are they you know, is it truly a disease? Is it variation? I think this is where the big data comes into. We've got to get some really great ways to store those genetic changes in patients, realizing we're going to have to reevaluate a lot and we're going to have to build those systems into it so that we can come back and actually, you know, we're going to occasionally have to be wrong Mm -hmm. because those changes later on are going to show to either be benign or the different one. I and think I, there was a New York Times article. Oh, no, it was a Times or Wall Street Journal article on that last year or year before about how um, family had gone through two or three iterations of this. And I think one of the ways that we are, are wrong in some cases is to have very rare publications, case reports of very rare diagnoses in families that are consanguineous or related to each other by blood. And so in those cases, you're not usually looking at you know, one or two genetic, what we call candidate genes or genetic changes, you may be looking at a whole series of those. And you may be looking at a person that doesn't just have one rare, rare disease, they actually have more than one rare disease. And the the clinical presentation kind of gets um, mixed together. So it's much more difficult to try and sort that drag that apart. Well, this all reflects that there was a time when we thought that when we can read the genome, then we can solve everything. But it seems <laughs> that new questions are popping up all the time. And actually, to, to that we a, point... We have a colleague who shall remain nameless who back in the late 90s said once the human genome was finished, we'd never need to examine uh, patients anymore and couldn't be further from where we are. No, that, that's, I think it's an important point that, that both uh, you and Helena make. And I, I wanted to also mention, so 
we've talked about sequencing, but there's different types of sequencing. There's yeah. sequencing individual genes to look for a defect. There's sequencing exomes, and there's sequencing entire genomes. Um, so the, the question I wanted to ask is, uh, if, we, if we were able to sequence people's genomes, or if the, the rate of full genome, whole genome sequencing increased, do you think we would identify more rare diseases? <sighs> well, um, Helena, you go first on this one. Well, yes, I think so. But, but at present, we are quite unable to analyze all the data that we get from the whole genome because we don't have the sufficient amount of the background data, the sort of normal data yet. Mm. But yes, yes, we will find new diseases or, or new, new variants in the same genes that are not in the area that we used to sequence before. Mm -hmm. You know, there's oh. a very interesting project that has been going on. Uh, I guess the lead, one of the lead people on this is Stephen Kingsmore who is looking at babies in the intensive care unit, newborns, mm -hmm. and doing very rapid genome sequencing on, uh, on these very ill newborns to come up with a diagnosis and really asking the question, if we can do very rapid um, genomics, can we identify the cause of the child's problem and change our therapy you know, rapidly, you know, within a day or so and look at the outcome of these infants. And it's been very interesting to find that that if you can do that, you can actually can change outcomes because you can change your therapy and just flip. And there have been a number of instances that they, that this whole team of experts reports um, as being helpful and therefore advocating for, for sick newborns. That may be something that we want to do, do this rapid genome sequencing to arrive at a very rare diagnosis. Hmm. Uh, I'll throw a little word of caution in here, though, because I think if I do a whole genome sequence on any of us or anyone else right now, and I'm looking to see if there are changes that might predict disease, the answer is probably going to almost always be yes. The, the problem is, is that doesn't always manifest in that patient's actual physical appearance and their physical behavior. I mean, there are some that are so extreme they always do, but uh, coming back to Cynthia's point earlier, we are all carrying a number um, you know, lethal or at least severe mutations in there. So I sort of look at it as we've got all the puzzle pieces spread out on the table. Um, some of them, we don't know what uh, the picture is on the puzzle yet or where they necessarily fit in. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a combination. I think eventually this technology will become more and more useful as we fill in those blank spots and as we fill in kind of those, mm -hmm. um, the faces on the puzzle. So if we don't use it, those those will never fill in. If we use it and we try to make sure we're absolutely certain, we're gonna be wrong sometimes. So it's gonna be a process that evolves with time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, if y'all would agree with that or not. I, yes, and I think as Helena says, it's gonna require big data analysis. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, Jiming's, you know, approach to big data, you know, may give us some answers we didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So yeah. one thing I want to point out, maybe Marshall already mentioned earlier, the challenge now, I mean, become more and more on the phenotype side as opposed yeah. to on the genotype side, because the gen genetic data, they're very standardized. Like you can get better and better uh, data from that source. But if you don't have the phenotypes, you don't have the, the disease labels, for, for example, you don't have the symptoms, um, very detailed characterization on each individual, then it becomes very hard to find 
what really the, the link between the genetic uh, features to the, the phenotypic features. That's, I think, is the challenge, right? I mean, the yeah, the genetic data, you get better and better more and more. Yes, we, we, mean, we have to have a better algorithm to process that huge amount of data. But on the phenotypic side, we don't even have a very reliable phenotypes a lot of times. And it's especially for the ones who do not have the disease because to predict, uh, to, to classify the disease, you need the both the cases, confirmed uh, cases and the, the confirmed negatives, right? The negative side is even worse. A lot of those uh, phenotypes are not even documented. So you just assume they don't have. So it's uh, very hard to build a classifier when you only have uh, some confirmed positive cases and no negative. And that's in my mind as a kind of a very challenging situation in which phenotypes we need to do better. Yes, and also in the diagnostics, um, in a normal diagnostic laboratory, I'm, I'm for instance working as a, a clinical geneticist in a diagnostic laboratory. And, and the problem is that the clinicians send, send so poor phenotypes that it, it becomes difficult because um, because if, if the only phenotype is that well de developmental delay and they don't tell what is normal that is growing normally and uh, eyes are normal ears are normal things like that but if this is not mentioned so that lab is in big problems with all the variants that are found because there are, there are a lot of variants in every every individual Mm -hmm. It's it's funny. I was we were comparing the old handwritten notes to the electronic notes as far as how rich they were for the phenotype. We actually found the old handwritten notes were um, had more depth as far as describing the patient. The electronic EMR has a lot of checkbox items in it. Actually, I wanted to, I wanted to throw something else out there too. We've actually been doing detection of rare disease for a very long time, going back in the '60s. But it's what I would call functional detection. Um, like things like the uh, newborn screening card for PKU, phenylketonuria, which will detect a genetic rare disease, but detects it by the actual end functional phenotype. And in some ways, that's a very powerful tool that I don't think we think about. I think, I think everyone's become very enamored with sequencing, myself as well as others, but there are functional tests you can do. And I think, Jimmy, probably looking in the EMR, we can start to find patterns uh, you know, either, you know, everything from radiographic to EEG, EKG, and uh, electrolytes that may actually be functional markers for some of these rare diseases. Yeah, and Marshall and Jumaine, going back to the phenotyping idea, just for a second, oh, yeah. you know, part of the problem is we, we have lacked, we now have, but we have lacked a common terminology um, mm -hmm. in genetics for describing what we see. And I think with the sort of expansion, hopefully, of what we call the human phenotype ontology that really have very descriptive, detailed terms to describe something. If we're all seeing the same thing, we want to be able to describe it in the same way yeah. so that when Zuming starts sifting through, you know, the electronic medical record, um, hypotelorism, narrow spaced eyes will be called the same thing by everyone and you know, it will be much more easily identified. Mm -hmm. And so I think having very specific language for phenotyping is gonna be also helpful. That kind of yeah. comes back to what I was mentioning earlier, Cynthia, around using image analysis, mm -hmm. where you can actually very, you know, the recognition, the measurements and everything else, the new, the new even the phones now 
are so powerful where you can actually do with millimeter precision a lot of those measurements. And I almost wonder if that more objective capture might be something that will start to really power those phenotypes more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, um, There even are now, as you know, Marshall, some databases out there, and Helen, I'm sure you use those as well, that take a standardized um, image of a particular syndrome, and you can actually feed this into the computer, your patient's picture to see what they match or what the, you know, what the most likely diagnosis would be. And, you know, they're crude at best at this point, but I think over time they're going to get more refined. We, we worked with the NIH from our group to do kind of what I would call the common syndromes. The reason being in parts of the world, you can't get genetic testing, but there's a, you can find a smartphone just about anywhere. And we found that for things like Down syndrome, it's about 98% accurate. Uh, Williams, some of the other, what I would say more common syndromes, um, that have a facial appearance, you can do those things. So that's another way to do detection. I was going to say, that's detection right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I, I wanted to, um, sorry, Jim Ang, look, wanted to let you go ahead, and then I, I want to just jump oh, to I it. just want to maybe just summarize uh, one important observation here, that is, whenever you have to introduce human in the loop to kind of assign some, I mean, judgment, then they become... Uh, unreliable in my mind, I mean, or oftentimes uh, and unstandardized. It takes time and they're so unreliable. So I really like the idea of uh, maybe alternative way of documenting uh, phenotypes, right? Maybe imaging, if can do that, that's definitely much probably more efficient, more reliable, at least standardized uh, moving forward versus if you depend on human to write it down and describe in some uh, standard terminology, then maybe very I mean, uh, hard for them to do it and also incentive become problem and also the kind of how do you standardize across hospitals it's uh, all kind of issues if human has to do that documentation of phenotype which is today's uh, practice but if mm-hmm. this can be done as reliable as and also like a lab test or imaging test then it, it will be a lot better but it's a, it's a great idea mm-hmm. Great. So we found that facial geometry is pretty predictive on those things. And actually stuff that you don't normally recognize as a person, uh, computer analysis of an image will pick up things that we don't see. Great. So the the next uh, part of the discussion I want to come to is detection of of known and unknown rare diseases. But before we get to that, uh, I did want to touch on very quickly the non-genetic side of rare diseases. And I know that uh, a number of you are geneticists, you know, and and Marshall, as you said, you've been enamored with genome sequencing. I think we all have. but there's, there's those 30% of rare diseases that are non, non-genetic. So how are those detected? And we're talking, you know, bacterial infections, environmental uh, issues like mercury poisoning, uh, nutritional defi- uh, deficiencies. Um, so Marshall, maybe you can start us off. Sure. Well, I mean, when you get out of the non-genetic area of rare disease, what you're doing is it's statistics. It's how often does a particular event happen? How often does a particular bacterial or tropical infection happen in the population you're looking at? Um, In the United States, if it falls below 200,000, then technically it's a rare disease. In the European Union, they use one in 2000. Um, Japan, Taiwan, and some of the other countries use actually a a set list, but then we'll also use that one in 2000. So 
it, it really is, is just how common does something happen? So certain fungal infections that are just very rare. Um, you know, you can make the argument sometimes there's a genetic predisposition for getting that very unusual condition. So, you know, being geneticists, we're always going to drag it back there. Mm -hmm. But it's really, for me, it's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. And Jimen, coming to back to your work, so um, can you maybe just talk briefly about how you use your databases, especially to detect non-genetic rare diseases? Because, you know, you're looking at, at phenotypes and you're looking across broad databases, right? Right. So, as uh, okay. So, most of the work we're doing, the data sets are just common electronic health records, and a lot of those are disease uh, diagnosis, medication procedure. Right. All those uh, kind of historical information have been documented during uh, regular patient encounters. Then, so we're just using that information, use longitudinal record. Eventually, maybe some rare disease being diagnosed, diagnosed. Then we just looking backwards using historical data as input features, trying to find the correlation. Can we maybe predict this diagnosis earlier? Uh, so usually, it take a, quite some time to confirm the diagnosis, but the, the disease is already there. If we can uh, associate some other variables uh, that way. So that's can be used for non-genetic uh, disease as well, because most of the data we're using are, we do not have those uh, genetic tests in it. So that's how we approach this type of problem. Right. You know, even, even non-genetic um, rare disorders have a signature, um, whether it's environmental or infectious, I mean, there is, there are ways to diagnose some of these things. It would be more with metabolites, and you know, this would show up in the electronic medical record. Of course, I think of lead poisoning in children, which unfortunately in Baltimore is not probably considered a rare disease, but um, in in the world generally, it probably is, or some very rare. Um, um, central nervous system infections caused by microorganisms, often viruses. There are still some very um, careful ways of actually making those diagnoses, and they also involve genetic sequencing, but sequencing this time for the virus itself, not for anything in the person. So I think, you know, even some of these, what we would consider non-genetic diseases, do have a characteristic signature. Great. So we talked uh, briefly about neonatal testing, and I, I wanted to ask, could you, uh, and Helena, maybe I'll come to you for this, uh, could you just sort of lay out what are the standard uh, tests for, for diseases, for rare diseases, specifically genetic diseases? So we, we have neonatal tests. I know those are different depending on which country you're in. Um, maybe you can just run us through a, a few examples. Well, actually, phenylketonuria, PKU, was the, was the disease why this all was started, I think, because, uh, because it's, it's so obvious that if you diagnose or, or detect this disease uh, early enough in the first weeks of life, the child becomes a healthy adult person, and if not, there will be severe uh, developing prob developmental problems. Uh, and so, for instance, in Finland, because we don't have PKU or 
we practically don't have it. It's, it's so extremely rare. We started neonatal screening later than many other countries. But when the screening was started, so many other diseases were added to the panel because it was sort of practical to, to screen also such diseases which you actually cannot very efficiently treat. And, and so it's the whole spectrum and it, it depends on there are countries who are very, um, what should I say, uh, very ambitious and screen a lot of diseases. But I think that it's not only the screening, but it's also what happens to the baby afterwards. So there has to be a very sound healthcare system, good pathways for those babies and families that are detected in the screening. And, and that's another problem. So not only screening, it's a whole, whole process. Yeah, Helen has got a great point there. Should you screen for things that you can't necessarily do anything about? Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a great set of criteria worked out by the World Health Organizations. It was based on some earlier publications, and, and I still think those hold true. The can you detect it early? Can you do something about it? Is it present in the population you're looking at? Um, and it's a little more detailed than that, but I, I actually think those are not necessarily bad guidelines. Cindy, Cynthia, what do you think? Well, I mean, I know that in the United States, there is a whole, as you know, Marshall, a whole committee that has yeah. comes up with this recommended screening profile of the diseases. And there's a whole long process that takes years and years to get something added to this profile. And there are criteria for doing that. How, you know, is there a therapy? How common is it in the population? You know, how accurate is the testing? And I think, you know, it, you know, going through the process, as you say, whether it's the recommendations of the World Health Organization or the this RUSP group in the United States, that there's some rhyme and reason about what actually goes on a newborn screening panel. And I think Helena brings up, you know, a, a most important point, which is once you find something, that's the easy part in some ways, once you, you know, get a positive screen, but then you have to have a whole healthcare system on the back end that is able to support families, you know, provide the treatment to the child and follow the child over time, or and usually the child and the family. Um, so it's not just doing the blood on the heel card. You know, there's a there's a big process, you know, that yeah. follows on. So I think you know, being careful about what we decide to screen for and then have the ability to follow up on it is is really key. There was some really great data out of New South Wales a few years back where they looked at the return on investment in newborn screening. Interestingly, the biggest payoff was in thyroid. Yes. Uh, hypothyroidism in the newborn had something like a 50 to one pay back to the, to the state. And, and I guess legislators, they have to look at these things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so what do you get back when that PKU does pretty well? But as we're getting into these more and more rare and more uncommon and very difficult to treat diseases, it's going to be an interesting process to figure out how do you, how does that balance out? Mm -hmm. and from from the a clinical perspective, what is the impact on the patient having the knowledge um, of what causes their disease? Is do you find that this is useful, or is it not of any use to the patient if it's not actionable? No, it absolutely, and we found this through the Undiagnosed Disease Program and actually reported it widely. What's in, I call it what's in a name. And I say everything because in a family, a family looking for a diagnosis, you know, may spend years and years trying to find a diagnosis. They don't really belong. They don't belong 
to a group of other people with the same condition. Um, there is stigma attached, you know, well, why doesn't your child have a diagnosis? You must not be seeing the right doctors. You know, in the population, one thinks that everyone should, diseases should all be able to be diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And for these really rare diseases, that's not the case. And so, you know, the anxiety attached as a parent to having a child with a rare disease that's undiagnosed is, is pretty substantial. And once the family receives a diagnosis, even if there's no treatment, they will say to you, you know, now, you know, I've, I've, I know what this is. I perhaps have a community that I can belong to an advocacy group um, to share best practices, even if all I'm providing to my child is supportive care. So there's a lot in a name, a lot, even if there's no therapy. But it's also oh. very important for the healthcare, I think, because otherwise the, we as doctors cannot concentrate to sort of treating the patient because we are looking for the diagnosis for years and taking new tests and sort of not concentrating to what is important actually in the everyday life for the, for the child and family. Well, I said child, of course, there are also adult patients. <laughs> but most of, most of the genetic diseases are, are uh, come... We, we see them first time in childhood. I think yeah, that closure seems to be very important. There's, there's also a couple of um, pieces out there that shows the expenditures go down after you make a diagnosis. There's actually a health systems reason to do it as well too. It's not all about that, but it's actually an important thing that I think it's lost sometimes. And it, it, that closure is really important for the families. Mm -hmm. What Cynthia and Helena said is absolutely spot on. Mm -hmm. So this, this brings me to a question I wanted to, to ask Jim Meng, and that is um, the, the broad database analysis that you're doing, how can that information be brought back to the individual patient level um, that'll aid in disease detection and diagnosis? Well, I think the one uh, idea in this, uh, maybe all those algorithms require a lot of data as we have discussed uh, again and again, which is very tricky in rare disease situation. But I do agree with all the, the other panelists. I mean, the patients and the families, they are very eager to participate. I mean, probably to help this line of research as well. I mean, there's one time, even my computer science paper got read by some mothers of a child. I mean, I don't know how this they find this. Maybe I had the rare disease detection in the title. And she called me and, uh, and asked, okay, are you doing more of this research and so on? I was very surprised to see uh, patients or families are really, really interested in uh, pushing this forward. So, but this type of data is very difficult to access. One possible idea is if patient um, start to collect or kind of gather their own data, there's a mechanism for them to share their data as well and directly for research. And then there's a whole lot of uh, benefit, right? By bypass a lot of the privacy concern if the patient consent, and we probably will dis discuss that line of topics, but if patient own their own data and uh, eager to participate, it can help this line of research. That's uh, my argument. That can help rebuild this database, right? It's unlike other common disease, there, even you access a single hospital, you can probably get a sufficient amount of patients to build a, a, a detection algorithm for a common disease, but rare disease, you need to really gather 
all of those yeah. type of patients, right, from the entire nation or beyond. Mm-hmm. So patient engagement directly and uh, will be a key to build such a database, in my opinion. I have to blow the horn for both the NIH and Finland on this for my two colleagues. The NIH, of course, has a pretty robust rare disease clinical research program. Uh, National Organization for Rare Disorders does as well, too. And um, Finland has been a world leader in collecting this natural history data as long as I've been in the field since the 1980s. I mean, they've sort of had this world-class data. And without that information, you can't really reverse engineer what a patient looks like before they have uh, been detected or have a diagnosis. So I think those efforts, they're long, they're not necessarily the uh, sexiest science you can do, but they're some of the most important science you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marshall, I agree with you. And I, you know, ha- I have to say, Jiming is right on on some of this and what's happening with families of a particular, I'm, I deal with a ultra rare disease called GM1 ganglucidosis. And it's it's rare enough that we don't understand the natural history of it. And as you say, Marshall, one way of doing that is to see a number of patients over a long period of time. But another way that has turned out to be very effective is to allow paid patients who own their data to contribute it into a registry. And it and actually, you know, there are organizations out there now who are collecting this data and putting it through the types of artificial intelligence Jiming is talking about to come up with a natural history that's turning out to be very useful for companies who are developing or have developed therapies for the disease to understand what, you know, what the milestones, the mileposts are um, in the history of that disease to look for outcome measures. So what are you gonna call success? Well, if you don't know how people fall apart over time, you don't know what to call success, but using this artificial intelligence of patients' medical records, it's been very successful in being able to to sort of pinpoint things they should be looking at in their therapies. Mm -hmm. Now, should the patients be concerned about privacy? And and Jimeng, you mentioned this in, in your previous comment. Uh, you know, I guess if they're sharing their own data, that's okay. But, uh, you know, are there any privacy issues that we should be thinking about? Uh, Jimeng, maybe you can start us off. Well, I think the, the from the computer science point of view, privacy is defined as if you kind of uh, re-identify the individual from a data set, that's generally considered not very good. And... For, for various reasons, maybe because the diagnosis may be very sensitive. I mean, just in general, this patient uh, records are very sensitive information. In United States, right, there's a law, I mean, about HIPAA that is kind of, uh, it's also illegal to do just uh, gather or share such a data without patient consent. And, and there's a lot of research being done to kind of focus on the privacy uh, aspects. Most of the ideas is about removing some patient identifiers, add some noise to the data so the data become less um, uh, re-identifiable to the specific individual. But in the rare disease case, it's actually very tricky because of the sample size issue. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost always re-identifiable, although because of the, maybe others can, can say more about the, the, the incentive and the patient's family's kind of motivation, maybe less a concern as more of a, can you gather enough data to build such a model is more of concern as opposed to, oh, 
you use my data, I don't want you to do that. So that's a, I haven't seen that in this uh, domain so much. Well, also I have the feeling that rare disease patients usually are not very worried about the, the privacy issues. Instead, they really very much want that their data is used because they know that too little is known about their disease. So, of course, of course, uh, the the ones who collect the data have to take care of that that it's uh, it's sort of properly protected. But anyway, I don't think that the, the patients, as a rule, are very much against it. It's yeah, harder to find the controls than it is the patients, as far as getting them to agree to participate. Yeah, Helen, I completely agree with you. I mean, the patients that I had deal with with rare disease want their stories known. They tend to know each other. And so as much time as I spend trying to not talk about other patients to a particular patient, they all know each other. They're all sharing their medical information anyway. And that's one point. I guess the other point I would make is in some of these registries, um, families are able even to contribute information on their deceased children or their deceased family members who have, let's say, you know, succumbed to a very serious genetic disease. And I can tell you in some cases, the parents are grateful for the opportunity to have their children's information used so that something positive could come out of something that was so negative for them. And I've heard that many, many times among families. So I think I agree with you, Ximing. In the rare disease community, um, families don't seem so worried about data privacy as they did do in just you being able to use their data and come up with therapies or cures or you know whatever you can. So I, I wanted to touch on something related to, to this discussion. Um, and uh, Marshall, I'm going to come to you for this one, since this is something that you, you raised when we were corresponding before the webinar. And that's uh, cultural considerations when doing testing. Um, could you talk to that? Because I'm not quite sure what you mean, but I'm really interested to know <laughs> what, what you're thinking. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one's biologic, and one is what I would call more social. The biologic is that when we're starting to do sequencing, um, we have to remember that different groups are going to have a lot of different variations. So um, anytime we go into a population that hasn't had a lot of sequencing done in it before or genetic testing done in it before, we have to be very careful um, that we don't call things abnormal that are actually normal for that population, vice versa. So there's the context of the genetic sequencing. The other is um, what I would say, uh, the understanding of the implication of genetic testing. Genetic testing is different from getting a set of electrolytes or getting a uh, you know, throat swab for an infection, things like that. The data is more permanent. And so you know, when you come in and you're testing someone's DNA, you're giving them lasting information that's pretty much going to be the life of that patient. And particularly in families, if they don't have a good understanding of that, you can create a lot of problems. Um, and there's a couple of good examples. There are sort of what are sort of called ancillary findings or findings beyond what you were looking for. And actually a lot of testing labs now will ask if you want to know if you have a risk for Huntington's disease or some of the other diseases that might be detected. So there's sort of a unintended consequences to genetic testing that can happen. 
And then sometimes the family may learn something about the family that they did not expect or know that can be quite upsetting or quite troubling, everything from parentage to other issues. So when you go into different cultures, different parts of the world, um, the DNA testing has very can have some very serious implications that you've got to think through very carefully. So I, I, I kind of use the term cultural competencies, but that's one of the things we really have to think about when we're looking at other groups. I'd be curious to get my colleagues input on that. Well, well, well. Uh, one thing is that if there's a hereditary disease in the family and you find a mutation or mutations that that cause it, uh, then suddenly prenatal diagnosis becomes possible, uh, or maybe maybe. Uh, predicting a disease in a young family member comes possible. And this, this raises very difficult questions, which may be very much culture related. So there may be cultures where you cannot discuss about uh, prenatal diagnosis. And there may be other cultures like, like most Western cultures where it's one option and families are of course different, but, but it can at least be discussed. Great. Um, so the other topic that I, I wanted to talk about was um, how the medical workforce can make proper use of genetic uh, testing. What sort of what sort of education do you feel that they need to really understand um, how to use that data and also how to um, share that information with the patient in a culturally um, respectful way as well as uh, a personal personally respectful way. Uh, Cynthia, maybe I'll come to you with this. You know, is there any advice that you would provide to the medical workforce, um, how they might be able to do things better? Well, you know, it's clear there are not enough geneticists worldwide to fill the need. So we're going to have to rely on um, other practitioners to basically give those results. I think it would be wonderful if medical schools provided that kind of curriculum. Um, genetic counseling programs certainly do. Not only what the results are that you're delivering, but how to, as you say, culturally sensitively deliver those results. I think, you know, realizing there's a lot to learn in medical school, but competencies and how to talk to patients about how to have difficult conversations with families um, and how to interpret genetic information would be extremely helpful. Um, I, and I can tell you that there are situations where physicians have ordered laboratory genetic testing, the results have come back, and it has not been clear to that physician that this is a positive result. And so it gets filed in the medical record sometimes, you know, for years before someone goes back and looks and says, well, the answer is right here. You know, you ordered it two years ago. So I think, you know, one, we just have to educate practitioners uh, I mean, genetics impacts every specialty in medicine. There's no question about that. And we need to educate people to be able to read those reports and deliver sensitive information in a really clear way. I think that uncertainty we see in a lot of the reports that maybe, I think people like binary answers. It's yes or no, you have it or you don't. And with the, the way genetics is right now, and still as we're evolving our understanding of the results of these things, that just simply doesn't happen. And I think a lot of physicians haven't been trained that way. So I do, I absolutely agree with Cynthia. We've got to get back into the training 
levels and start to you know get them used to doing and dealing with that level of uncertainty Yes, and there's again the problem of, of that rare diseases are so rare, rare genetic diseases are so rare. So it doesn't happen every day to a, to an, another doctor, an ophthalmologist or, or dermatologist that he or she is supposed to explain a genetic result. And so even, even, even if he or she is well prepared, then maybe after some months, it's, it's not, the words are not easily coming. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a paradigm shift, I think. Historically, physicians were expected to be masters of all the knowledge in their field. And in genetics, that's impossible. You know, with the addition of new diseases every week or every day, there's no way to be absolutely encyclopedic in what you know. And for many of these diseases, you know, they're brand new. We don't have a good understanding yet. So it's a different way of thinking about human disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's when we rely on large databases um, and compendia of disease variants to, to tell us how to interpret the results. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say genetics is more digitally dependent than any field of medicine. But in addition to, to having doctors who are able to, to discuss these things with their patients, we also need, I think, something written. We should have... Um, uh, information in the internet, um, and, and it's maybe not practical that every university hospital creates its own, but it could be that the, the genetics community creates um, good information that would support both the doctor and also the patient to better understand the, the results. Mm -hmm. right, well, I, I think you, all of you are doing fantastic things to support the, the rare disease research community. So. Um, we're unfortunately out of time, but I did want to thank you so much um, for your taking the time to be here, for your input, for your research, everything you do. Um, so many thanks to, to um, our fantastic panel uh, for generously sharing your knowledge uh, and your insights today, and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>